Hi everyone, welcome to Resistance Recovery. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. very, very happy to have Michael Martin with me today, who is the director of the Center of Sociological Studies in Waterloo, Michigan. Is that right? Well, well Waterloo Township, Grass Lake, Michigan. Yeah. Grass Lake, Michigan. Um, Michael is the author of this book, The Submerged Reality, Sociology, and the Turn to a Poetic Metaphysics. And I think as we'll come out in the conversation, I think this is um, a really important book, especially for Christians of all stripes. And I think we can, we can get into this. So maybe before we start, just a little bit about Michael Martin and how you came to, to write this book. Okay, sure. Um, well, it was a long process, actually. I mean, I first heard about sophiology Oh, gosh, 30, probably more than 30 years ago, uh, I was working in a bookstore and um, I think I was talking about the rosary to, to a customer and he said, and he said, you must know about Vladimir Slovyev. And I didn't know anything about <laughs> Slovyev. So I, I found a book on Slovyev and read it and read as much as I could. And, uh, and so I, 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 you know, wasn't and at that time I was not uh, a professional scholar or anything. I was a musician actually, and uh, it, it, but it's, you know it, it stays with you, and you know you encounter things as you go along your path, and you find find more more things that are like that. But then what happened? You know, kind of fast forward to about fifteen, sixteen years later, I was working on a PhD. In, in English, um, and I, you know, I'd always kind of had this kind of side interest in sociology, but never really had time to really explore it in depth. And then what happened? I was wor working on my dissertation, which was later published as the book uh, "Literature and the Encounter with God in Post-Reformation England." And in that book, I have, there are chapters, there's a chapter on John Dee, a chapter on John Donne, chapter on Sir Kenelm Digby, if you know about him, who was an alchemist and kind of swashbuckler. And the, the last two chapters were on Henry and Thomas Vaughan and Jane Led from the Philadelphian Society. And as I was doing the last two chapters, and it was, it was later in the, the 17th century where those, those figures showed up, and, and their spiritual uh, attitudes, their, their mysticism uh, changed quite, a, I mean, was changed quite a bit from what you saw earlier in the, in the 17th century in England. And uh, what changed that was uh, the introduction of the works of Yaka Burma in, into English. They were first published in 1648. And, and I realized at the time that it kind of set off uh, a sociological atom bomb or something in 17th century England because it kind of reset Christian mysticism from that place forward. And it, I realized that no one had ever uh, really done a study of that. And I said, and I, and I think I, and, well, I don't think it's in the final book, but I think it's in my dissertation. I put a footnote. Said, Somebody should write a book about this. <laughs> it ended up being me. In fact, the original. Uh, intention for the, the submerged reality was was to focus more on the 17th century but as i got into the projects i said you know this is a much bigger thing than just the 17th century mm -hmm. you know so uh, so i kind of opened it up that way and 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 what i found through i guess those two books was i finally had that i finally had a name for my own spirituality mm. you know because i in fact, our farm 
I, I'm a biodynamic farmer. Our farm is, is named Stella Matutina, which is start, the morning star, which is actually one of the titles of the Virgin Mary. And mm. so my wife and I, in fact, my wife and I, our relationships almost was cemented. We're, we've almost been married 30 years uh, by praying the rosary together all these years ago. And uh, so, so that kind of Marian sociological spirit, spirituality has kind of always been there. But what I, what I got from the Philadelphians and from Henry and Thomas Vaughn was, was actually, uh, I, I, found, I found my clan, you know what I mean? I found my tribe. And I found uh, that they were actually articulating a spirituality that I had been practicing, but didn't have a word for. And, and what that spirituality is, it's, uh, and, and as I write in the book with uh, the introduction of natura pura or pure nature philosophy in the 16th century was, was devastating for uh, religious culture, for Christian culture. And a lot of people don't even know about it um, because the pure nature argues that there could be and probably are places in the world or in human beings or where God's grace is absent. The presence of God, it's, it's not possible, right? And the, the sophiologists go, going from Burma all the way to, to today to Thomas Merton argue that that's, that's not at all the case. That's, 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 that's not reality. And so that the reality then has to do with um, the human being in not only relationship with other human beings, but with nature, which which to be in relationship with nature is to be in relationship with the supernatural. Yes. There, in fact, there is no supernatural. There are just different gradations of nature. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a hyper Aristotelian model that that absorbs uh, uh, Platonism as well. So your acquaintance with these English figures. I mean, you have the early the early introduction to Solovyev. And then you go here. Is that all prior to uh, meeting Anthroposophy and, and reading deeper into the into the Russians, or is this all happening kind of at once? Well, yeah, kind of all happened at the same time. So when I, in fact, the guy who told me about Soloviev had he was a kind of Anthroposophist. I don't know how tightly he with tight with, with the Anthroposophist he was, but and it, not long after that, I became a Waldorf teacher. Mm -hmm. And I was a Waldorf teacher for 16 years. You were a grades teacher? I was a grades teacher. I was a class teacher, yeah. And I was also a, a master Waldorf teacher. I would go around the country teaching people how to be teachers mm -hmm. and coaching people, mentoring people. Um, so, but, you know, and so Steiner, and, and he's in my book, right? He is, in fact, I just gave a lecture about a month ago. About a month ago, I gave a lecture to the Anthroposophical Society here in Ann Arbor on, on Rudolf Steiner and, and sophiology. Really? Because what Steiner is doing is sophiology, mm -hmm. you know, and, but, and, and, uh, and his sophiology, though, it comes out of the Rosicrucian tradition. And, and I don't mean the Masonic Rosicrucian tradition. I mean, going back to the, the, original documents of the early 17th century, you know, that when they appeared, like the chemical wedding and uh, the, the fama and the confessio. And, and, and there, you know, that they're also proposing the same thing. In fact, uh, Thomas Vaughn mentioned, he wrote the first introduction to the, uh, to the fama and the confessio uh, in 1650, I think it was 1650. So, and he was considered a Rosicrucian ap apologist. Um, but that's that spirituality where the spiritual world is always present with the physical world, the material world. It, that's and and also in in the Rosicrucian uh, documents, you know, this desire to. Um, maintain or modify or 
at least bring to mind the, the integration of science, art, and, and religion, you know, which later with Goethe, that becomes a kind of a, a slogan for Goethe, you know, when Goethe says, if a man has uh, science and art, he has religion. But if he has neither science nor art, give him religion, you know? And it's true, I think. You know, and so the Rose, that's, that's a very uh, much a Rosicrucian ethos. And Steiner carried that. And, and that has so much in of sociology is so much a part of that kind of Rosicrucianism. In fact, uh, you, you know, uh, there's a Robert Flood, if you know, know about him. Mm -hmm. Another Rosicrucian, he was also, he was kind of a theologian and a physician which is interesting because so is Henry Vaughn, who was also a physician, Paracelsian physician. But in one of his diagrams, he has, you know, this famous one, the cosmos, and you have the, the Virgin Sophia is the, the kind of, the kind of uh, connection between the hand of God and creation. And that's, that really informed my, under I mean, not just that image, but that kind of uh, understanding of how, reality is configured really had a huge impact on the way I, I started looking at the world and, and on my farm and, you know, I'm musicians and how I look at art, poetry. And, uh, you know, cause it's sort of my mind, Sophia in that way is this, uh, what uh, many people have called the metaxu. Right. The between. Yes. Uh, you know, and, 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 and then the Virgin Mary, for instance, becomes Sophia incarnate and she becomes, she does that metaxu in spades because it was through her that, you know, divinity becomes palpable to the senses. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's heroic, but it's, that's, that's, that's pure sophiology. So, you know, I have a background in anthroposophy and such and blah blah. Yeah. And the 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 spirituality that you encounter in anthroposophy, at least my experience, has often been hyper intellectual. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even when we're out in the soil or in the Waldorf kindergarten, there's a kind of the theory is just so and when you look at Marian spirituality and certainly the Russians. You know, we're really like, you know, when, when Solovyev's talking integral spirituality, he's, yeah. it's all heart, yeah? And did this cause um, a tension for you or did you have a hard time finding dialogue partners around this? When I was, when I was hanging with the Anthropops? When you're hanging with the Anthropops and you're, you're a devout Catholic and you've got these literary interests, was that? Yes and no, I mean, um... I mean, there were definitely people who thought, <laughs> thought it was, this is funny, anthropopsy thought it was weird to be like <laughs> yeah. so, uh, instead of the other way around. And, uh, but, well, you know, my thing was, even back then, uh, I just wanted to, you know, I don't want to talk about things all the time or just, you know, come up with conceptual uh, artifices, right? I, I wanted to actually do things and see if it worked or not, which is one of the things Steiner always says. You know, he says, don't trust me. Right. Find out for yourself, right? So I wanted to find out for myself, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably distanced me from a bit from, you know, straight up anthroposophy. You know, even though I have a lot of friends who are anthropops, but when I left Waldorf teaching, I was, I was kind of done for a while mm -hmm. because you know, I, it, it's it's so easy to become, you know, the initiates, the secret group. Oh yeah, it's the you most know? insular thing in the world. Absolutely, and I want I don't want to do that. I want to be in the world. Yeah. Right? Like so this book was written long after you stopped teaching as a Waldorf teacher. Well, was it long? Maybe we say I stopped teaching. Uh, I think I stopped teaching in two thousand seven. So it was only eight years later that the book came out. Uh huh. Um, and then we encounter, okay, so you're pursuing this vein of study, um, 
you're a Catholic. The Russian inheritance is just really so rich. And the Catholic world seems to have been, at least from reading your book, infected by the, the pure nature doctrine to a greater or lesser degree, greater degree. And so you're probably in your reading, are you looking for, you know, beyond Marian spirituality or, or a folk spirituality, are you looking for theologians that can, from the Catholic tradition that can? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm looking for them, but I find them. Yeah, you know, I, in the book, you know, one of the people I talk about is Hans Urs von Balthasar, and so you know, I think, you know, he is pretty sophiological. He was deeply influenced by Bulgakov, uh, the Russian sophiologist. But you know, what happened with him is he was really good friends with Henri de Lubac, right? Who wrote a book, Sur Naturel, right? Exactly on this topic. Well, you can say not really on sophiology, but on pure nature. And de Lubac uh, cut all kinds of hell for it. You know, and he was, he was uh, prohibited from teaching for a while and prohibited from writing. It was a lot, he was, the Pope was after him. I think it was, was a pious. It was thought to be a kind of a crypto pantheism or something along those lines. Oh, that, yeah. And then of course, another one of Balthazar's friends was, was Teilhard de Chardin, who was also accused of being a crypto pan pantheist or, or whatever it was. but. Both of those figures, I mean, Surnatural, which is surprising to me, if, you, if you've read it, it's hard. You, I don't think it's in English that I heard. It's supposed to be coming out in English. I've been hearing this for 10 years. Hmm. Uh, and I only could get a really beat up French, uh, French copy that I had to return to the library when I read it. So I probably have a bunch of photocopied pages. But uh, it's refreshing. In fact, you know, who has also been really inspired by, by De Lubac is... Uh, is uh, John Milbank from oh, really? Radical Orthodoxy. And he wrote a book on De, De Lubac and, and he's written some good things on sociology as well. And, and he wrote, in fact, he wrote an endorsement for the submerged reality, uh, which is how I got to know him better. Cause I, 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 we had never met. And, uh, and so he, you know, he's, he's supported me a lot and, and he's, uh, he's one of the people out there in the world now and he is an Anglican who is really uh, representing a kind of sociology in mainstream theology. Would he use that term? Pardon me? Would he use that term? Oh, yeah. He, in fact, he's got a pretty, uh, I wouldn't call it famous, but um, uh, well-documented well and often documented essay called Sociology and Theurgy. No, really? Which you can find, actually, you can find, uh, you can find a Word document online or a PDF of the whole thing. It ended up in a book uh, published by, what was it, by Ashgate Publishing. And I wanted to put it in a, a, the anthology I did. I did an anthology on sociology called The Heavenly Country, but they, they wanted so much money for me, for me to include that. And I said, and never one of my publishers said, hey, wait, 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 I'm on the team, right? Yeah. Yeah, but no, but they actually right after that they went under. So <laughs> no wonder they needed the money. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, he's impressive because he's so well read. I mean, I was really pleased when I saw that Milbank had been reading, uh, was well acquainted with Barfield and you know a few oh, other yeah. figures that really need their need their time. Um, well, I have to bring it to this. So when did you encounter meditations on the tarot? Um, around the time I encountered Solovian. Really? I think I was oh, 20, well, it was right around the time it came out. So I was about 23. Uh, it was maybe the year, the year after it came out. And at the time I had, had floated away from the Catholic church after some miserable experiences as a teenager in Catholic high school. And that book, you know, that's uh, certainly set me on the path back toward the church. Were you, versed, were you versed in anthroposophy when you read that? Yeah, yeah. not really well versed, but I was, I was, I was getting there. So but, reading that book for me, which was age twenty six, made me a Christian, decidedly forever. Yep. And 
in a way, it was the most profound spiritual experience of my life. Yeah. And, and I was not ready for it. I wasn't ready for it either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really haunts me to this day. That is, that, yep. that is just, uh, yeah, what can we say about it? Yeah, you should see uh, the copy, my, my original, it's a hard copy, hard cover, cover copy, the one by Amity House. And I colored all the cards with the, the appropriate colors. <laughs> it's got so many notes and underlinings. And it's falling apart, but man. Yeah, it's mine a special, is. Special thing. Mine's all um, and it's interesting. Interesting that you say that about the profound spiritual experience because um, when I was working on my master's degree, my original plan was was hoping to learn Russian. They didn't offer Russian at my, at my university. I was hoping to learn Russian and do some more work on, on the Russian sociologists, but I really wanted to write my thesis on Tomberg and meditations on the tarot. Uh, it didn't end up working out that way for whatever reason. But through the course of that, I contacted, um, I don't know how I got in touch with these people, but I, I found phone numbers for Robert Powell, mm. who translated it, and James Morganti, who translated uh, the book, it's called Covenant of the Heart, or uh, mm -hmm. what's the other word, Lazarus Come Forth. Mm. Um, I don't know how I got in touch with those guys now so long ago, but I called them up and Robert told me this, he had the same thing happen to him when, when he was, he was studying Eurythmy in Dornach in Switzerland. And he met this woman who had the manuscript of meditations in the tarot and said, you are the person to translate this. Oh, wow. And, and it was, was, as Robert said, it was not Catholic at the time. Uh, as he, he said, as he was going through that, it was, he had, had profound religious experiences that he knew he had to join the Catholic Church. Yeah, I literally lived, this has happened to me twice in my life, but I read that and I think I lived in a, a state of some kind of grace for about eight months. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get a resentment if I wanted to. Yeah. And the business about the heart being this emollient force in the world, you know, that, that was happening. Yeah. And then when it ended for me, it, it was a door slamming shut. Wow. And uh, it had a lot to do with drug addiction and a few other things, but, mm -hmm. um, and then I would live in this sort of memory of that forever. Um, <clears throat> pretty profound. So it's, it's good for me to hear that you had this experience and that Pal did, I mean, I, I've heard tell of people having that experience, but I know more people that read the book and don't have the experience. Yeah, I know that happens too. Yeah. And then, of course, when the Prokofiev stuff happens, <laughs> well, I, I had to read all of it. And oh, I, did you really? Yeah. I read I, some of it. I didn't read it all. I met him. I met him twice, and I I asked him. I talked to him about it. Did you? Um, and he, you know, he really acted as though it was a sacred errand that he had to do. And that, that experience, he writes about this, but that experience, he really insinuates that that's, that is a replication of the occult imprisonment that Tomberg himself experienced. That it's like spreading yeah. to, to the readers. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I could never get down with that. Um, no, I couldn't. That's eat. the thing. That's the weird thing, right? Is that in anthroposophy, it means the Steiner was the the one person who said, "Don't turn me into a guru. Don't make this dogma." Right? And Prokofiev certainly did make a dogma, or tried to anyway. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff he raises about some of the French occultists in there might have some merit. You know, they're not always the most savory characters, but. Yeah, and, and then that this would be this divisive thing. You know, it's like this flashpoint mm -hmm. between the world of Catholicism and the world of anthroposophy ever since. It's just right. stunning. In fact, I remember when, uh, what's that one book by Prokofiev, The Case of Valentin Tomberg. Yes, that's the first one. When that came out, uh, I remember the, remember the Gnosis magazine? Uh-huh. They, they had a really funny review of it, and the title of the review was, uh oh, those darn Jesuits are at it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it definitely had the Jesuit uh, conspiratorial. That's like, you know, that it's that 19th century Jes- anti-Jesuit paranoia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's still with us. Oh, I yeah. mean, if you go into the conspiracy world, you're still seeing these tropes of the Jesuits and the Masons having at it. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Too funny. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have time for that. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so, you know, when I said, when I introduced this book and I said how important I think it is for Christians of a lot of stripes is, you know, it's a very dense book. And so I, I had to reread a big part of it to prepare for this. I read it the first time a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, you accomplish a lot in here. Um, but I think for me as a reader, anyway, the thing that was really, really, really amazing was that you gave a name to something. You said, you basically said that there's this kind of liminal space that transcends theological thinking. And you say it brings together nature, the poetic, and contemplative practice. And um, for a few years now, I've been teaching this contemplative spiritual direction program at a place called the Alcyon Center in Maine. And uh, we are the contemplative practice is really informed by Robert Sardello's oh, yeah. hard stuff, but we're always reading scripture and poetry, and then we're taking those exercises and working with the scripture, but also working with nature. And it's you, you just named it. I mean, this yeah. is like this could be the text for that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I would have come to that understanding had it not been for Henry Vaughn. And what was it about Vaughn that really did Because that? that's what, it's weird. If you read, you read Vaughn and if you read him, you know, from our perspective, he's got, there's all this nature that goes on. He's really in, invested in, in, in God and nature. But if you, you look at it in the context of his times, nobody was writing about nature like that nature was not written about as something that is disclosing the divine right and with him there's kind of a i think it is like a braid there's like the scripture braid the human braid the nature braid and and even the science braid he was a he was also a physician right Mm -hmm. so those things are all interpenetrated kind of anticipates goethe in a way Mm -hmm. but he does it in such a beautiful way that you, you know, when I, as I was reading through all of his poetry, it just, that's when I, that's when I came to that realization, oh, this is what I do. <laughs> so that's what it is. Yeah, that got it. Now at that time, I think I was, well, it, the title of the chapter on the Vaughns in that one book is the Rosicrucian mysticism of Henry and Thomas Vaughn. And that's, that's whatever it is. And that's anticipates Steiner, anticipates Goethe. And I think uh, it's this is still a, a science yet to come. I mean, only I can. There are some examples of that. I think David Bohm. You probably know about him, mm-hmm. right? In his uh, Implicate Order, yeah. Where from in, the, in 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 a lot of my my philosophical background is in phenomenology, and you know, we do a lot of, a lot of phenomenology. It, Steiner was a phenomenologist, right? Yeah. So in this this idea of beholding something in reverence without judgment to actually see what lives there. That's what that's what Vaughn was doing. Mm-hmm. That's what Goethe is doing. That's what Steiner was doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what our sciences don't seem to be doing. But I but David Bohm in his implicate order, what happens in that is uh the, the observer becomes implicate in the, the observed and vice versa. It's kind of reciprocity that happens. Right. And that, that awakens wisdom. Yeah. But I think you really nail it. This refraining from judgment. Yeah. There's some sort of internal gesture that has to happen with that. Yeah. Um, a restraint or a consent. Uh, because judgment is a kind of uh, attempt to possess, right? Yeah. Or definitions. Yeah, it's imperial kind of. Yeah, there's a class I I teach upon occasion for a Catholic college around here called, uh, what's it called? 
contemplation and action. Uh, but I never give them a definition for what contemplation or action are. And, and so halfway through the course, I remember one time somebody came into the room, some official from the couch. So uh, this class is called Contemplation and Action. So what's contemplation? And they all look at me. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not telling you. <laughs> yeah, right. Figure it out. Mm. Mm. And it would seem to me that spirituality, Christian spirituality, needs to learn these gestures anew. And we, you know, I think reverence now has become so much about formal um, observances or rites. Piety. Yeah. Yeah, piety. And there's something about, you know, this is why Sardello really kind of changed everything for me is there's something about, you know, going into the body as a way of becoming resonant with the world. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, what's interesting about him is he, he'll describe what he does as kind of an inverted anthroposophy. Yeah. And he'll refer you to, like, the last page of Outline of Esoteric Science, where Steiner's talking that this is a cognitive path. And yeah. he says, but there's also a heart path. Yeah. And then he, but he says it's too difficult for the modern world. And, boy, the modern world needs it. Absolutely. And I think Robert's done great things with that for the, gosh, last hundred years. Yeah. In fact, I, I, uh, when I was a Waldorf teacher, I put, I, I it was my job to put together a, a conference one year and I brought Robert and his wife, Cheryl, to get, to be the keynote speakers for this conference. So I met him got a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And then I re-encountered him in the last few years because I got to be friends with Therese schroeder Schieker. Do you know her? Sure. Yeah. And she, we get to be friends. She she read the the, the submerged reality and, and got a hold of me through my publisher. Oh wow! And we've been we've become really good friends. We talk once or twice a week. Uh, but but I reconnected with Robert through her because she's she's very close to Robert. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then then I asked him. He he wrote uh, an endorsement for my 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 edition of the Chemical Wedding. Mm -hmm. that came out about a year ago. Right. Maybe a year, two years ago, maybe. No, last year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whatever. Yeah, but his work, he's, you know, you, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but he's got one of his books where he follows uh, Tom Berg's model to speaking to the unknown friend. Um, is Which that book? in Facing the World with Soul? That might be. I, mean, I know he references the Tarot book in there. Yeah. yeah. And he references like Link Florensky and mm -hmm. maybe Bulgakov. Well, yeah, I think what Therese and Robert are doing is a, is so, is a sociology. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, he tries to move away from the names of things. He right. seems to be in this place where the names of things often cause more confusion. I agree. I do too, but I, I sometimes, I hope he doesn't watch this. <laughs> I sometimes... <laughs> I sometimes hope uh, want him to be a little more explicitly Christocentric, um, but that's you know that's me. Um, Wait, yeah, it's it's he's de it's definitely there. Yeah. Oh yes. Definitely sure. So in one of your uh, interviews on your website, I listened to you. You said that you are a big fan of Simone Weil. Yeah. Very much. And does she, I am as well, does she, I know the business about the attention and the beauty of the world, um, but does she, would you, where would you put her relative so, to Sophia, sociology? Well, in, uh, in her radical attention, right? And that's one thing she says that, uh, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity, right? And her refusal to, in fact, not even a refusal to judge, but she even goes further that where, and I think the boy, she has a lot to teach our, our current moment, right? Where rather than judging people, uh, you know, beneath her, she, she leaves her teaching job to go work on, on an assembly line. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. She, she, 
that's radical Christianity right there. Yeah. You know? And her statement that truth is available to everyone, no matter how limited or great your faculties. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, the first, you know, I edit this, uh, this journal called Jesus, the imagination. And on the first volume, it's four years ago now, um, I translated uh, one of her pieces where it's kind of, it's her only description of her, her, uh, her spiritual experience of Christ. Well, I shouldn't say that it's, it's not the only one, it's, it's one of her spiritual experiences where... The George Herbert experience? Or? Uh, different than the George Herbert experience. It's where she's in a, uh, an attic and she feels his presence. It's a really beautiful thing. And um, that had not been translated into English before? It had been, I think. Well, had it? I think it may have been, but I, but I, found, a, I found the French and I, I decided I would translate it myself. And I included it in that first edition. And, uh, but the, yeah, the George Herbert, and that's how, well, what, with, with Simone Weil, I see, I, uh, I, I was really lucky as an undergraduate because I went, there are all these classes that I saw listed in, in the course catalog, but they never offered them. So, <laughs> so I would, I hunt, hunted down the, the head of the philosophy and religious studies department. I said, you know, you got these courses. I'd love to take these, but they're never offered. And he said, well, I'll, you can just take him with me. So I did like an Oxford tutorial with him. In fact, he went to Oxford. Um, and one of the things he had me read was Simone Weil. And I remember thinking, wow, this woman's serious. <laughs> you know, she, her, her, her unflinching uh, focus on the truth, which is startling to me. And then what happened? So, you know, I hadn't read they in a while and when I was uh, in graduate school working on my dissertation I was working on in, uh, that book I mentioned earlier but and I encountered and probably my main focus in scholarship is the metaphysical poets mm -hmm. and so I, I was writing about George Herbert and then you know and I read her experience of Love 3 which is an extraordinary poem anyway and how she told that priest in that letter that was while she was reciting that poem that Christ himself came down and took possession of her. Yeah. And that's pretty startling, right? Yeah. And that, that's exactly what happens. And that's what I call an agapeic reading, right? Where you don't, where, where coming out of phenomenology, where you don't impose judgment on what it is, what the, what the phenomenon is. And I, I think with her experience of, uh, that Herbert poem is not only was she attentive and reverent toward the words of George Herbert, but that George Herbert's subject was able to shine through the poem and the translation and come into her into heart, right? Yeah. Which, that's <laughs> that's where she that's where she's alive in sociology, right there. Right. That the 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 constant attention, the, the honing of the capacity of attention can only make one receptive. So Absolutely. the geometry problem can be a spiritual exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I became acquainted with her the same summer I read the Tarot book. When I was about <laughs> it, was a, it was an intense summer. Oh, yeah, it was. And so I, I, you know, I've been journeying with her all these years and for me, she's kind of like quicksilver. You know, if I stay away from her, I sort of lose it. Yep. You know, the, and then I go back into it and I find I have to go back to the gym it's all over. The, yeah. yeah. So she really demands something of you that few few writers do. Yeah. You know, interesting. Uh, when I was teaching uh, at, I can't remember, uh, I can't remember what the course was, but I, but I, I used Simone Weil in a course I taught on classical myth literature, her, her essay on the Iliad, mm. a force, but other places too. But this one young woman who later became my, my, uh, my research assistant when I was working on one of the books, I went to my office one day at, at the college and there was this silk screen of Simone Weil from her passport photo. 
It was beautiful. And I thought, well, is this for me? So I better bring it in. I don't want to wreck it. So there was no note or anything. So I brought it in my, into my office. And then a few weeks later, this, this young woman comes in. Did you get what I left for you? And it's beautiful. In fact, I've been meaning to get a frame for it. But it's 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 a prized possession because you know it's an icon for me. Yeah. Yeah. In the last few years, it looks like the secondary literature is finally beginning to, you know, come on, come along that's this can meet the challenge. Yeah. I do another interview on here with a woman named Lisa McCullough, who's a space scholar and she just said it changed her life. Mm -hmm. She did it at the University of Chicago under uh, David Tracy. Wow. Dissertation. And yeah, she just said it was utterly transformative. Absolutely. So what, what goes on at the Center for Sociological Studies? Um, depends. <laughs> so, so actually, we're in the middle of, uh, we're hoping to build a yurt out in our woods to offer classes in there. And I, right now I offer classes online and uh, we also have a biodynamic farm here mm. where, uh, so, so there's a lot that goes on. Sometimes we have, uh, we have, we do festivals. You do, wonderful. In fact, when my, when my, when I left Walter teaching, you know, I, st I still had a few kids to go. I have nine children. And uh, <laughs> we, my, I told my wife, you know, we're not gonna leave Michaelmas and May Day to the Anthropops. <laughs> It's it's not a boutique, <laughs> you know. So actually, we have we have usually if we if we can get three homeschooled Catholic families to show up, that's that's twenty seven kids right there. So uh, so we have these festivals. We just did one for Michaelmas a little while ago. We also do Twelfth Night, we uh, St John's Day. So we, we try to keep those alive here at, at the center. But, but hopefully next year after I get this, this yurt built, we'll start to have classes on, on site. And the classes are? Uh, classes on sociology, classes on, I did actually have a lecture series on meditations on the tarot. You do? Mm -hmm. in, fact, in fact, I think Therese was one that told me, you gotta do that. You have mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and I'm, I have other things, and you know, I, I keep don't have had a chance to get them together. But maybe this this winter I'll be able to get one together on biodynamic farming and gardening as Christian path. And yeah, it, has anything like that been done? I don't think so. Wow. Uh, and metaphysical poets, though, you know, it's like kind of a limited clientele for that one, but <laughs> it's, it's what I do. Do you have a a, a, a meetup community in in your area? Uh, interested in sociology and stuff? Yeah. Um. Um. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I have friends, but I but I did notice actually. This is kind of a funny thing. My daughter over the summer was working at a local farm for a little while, local organic farm, and she met this this young man about her age. My daughter's twenty three. And he said, he was said to her, you ever hear this Michael Martin guy? <laughs> so, like, yeah. And then she's like, maybe you're not so crazy after all. <laughs> but, uh, but, but there is a Buddhist center nearby that gives classes and, and stuff like that. So that's why we wanted to get this yurt built. So we, cause our barn is really drafty and noisy and full of animals. But if we can do it in a yurt, you know, I can, we can, we could have classes of, you know, 15 to 20 people, you know, through the course of a season, or if we could do it, we could even do like intensive weekends and stuff like that. Do you have a digital community? I have a digital community now. In fact, everybody's got a digital community now, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in 2016, we had a conference here. I just, I said, let's have a conference. And I was going to do it again this last year, but then we got hit with the pandemic. Uh, and that was great. In fact, quite a few people came and I, I almost got Christopher Bamford to come. Oh, wow. Uh, and Therese was going to come, but, she, but she, she couldn't make it. But that was when I first met Therese she, as she contacted me about the conference. And uh, so I'm hoping maybe next year, see how things go with the 
with the lockdown situation, but I'd like to have another conference. And what would, how would you describe the demographic of the community? Is it tilted towards anthroposophists or is it people from diverse backgrounds or? Diverse backgrounds. Uh, it, well, I, I guess who, who gets attracted to my work, it, it kind of, there's a few different de demographics, I guess, but there are, a, there's a kind of uh, Christian anarchist you know, somebody, people, people who are just feeling that there's something missing, Yeah. you know, and what is that thing that's missing? Yeah. So these, you know, the Christian anarchist types who are, I would describe more like Amish or Luddites, mm -hmm. which, you know, which brings them into a relationship with, with anthroposophists, mm. right? Who are also suspicious of the aromonic structures of the internet and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And our technologically overloaded lives. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some, there's some uh, intersectionality there, I guess. Um, but a lot of it I see that are people who feel disenfranchised from institutional Christianity and, uh, and anthroposophy. You know, they don't feel like they fit in any place. Yeah. So are they disaffected from anthroposophy? Um, some of them, I think, no, I don't think it's any. Or they just never. They well, just, it's not true. It's not true. There, in fact, when uh, when the, the submerged reality came out, at first I was getting uh, contacted by people actually in Robert Powell's group. Robert Powell, he lives, I think, in Ecuador now. Really? But there's a there's a group of people, and they're all basically Catholic anthropops, anthroposophical Catholics. Um, and, and some of them, quite a few of them, were Waldorf teachers. And one wrote me, and she said, saying how she thought the book was inspiring. And, and she said, and I could tell you were a Waldorf teacher. And I said, why? Because because everything's explained so clearly. <laughs> it's like you spent years trying to talk to an eleven year old, <laughs> right? It is a clear book. Yeah. Go ahead. I said it's a clear book. It's yeah. a dense book, but there's clarity there. It's it's really quite a book. Well, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I think you know. So, and I think people who I I've noticed recently, there's a lot of uh, in fact, a lot of Episcopalians and Anglicans have taken my courses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see them show up at the Alcyon Center as well. <laughs> Tilted pretty heavily towards that, actually, amongst the Christians. We get a few Quakers. And they seem to be like high church Anglo-Catholic types. Yes, usually. that's right. That's right. Yeah. They're not, they're not, um, it's just more reverent. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah. What's well, beautiful? I mean, the liturgy is just beautiful. Yeah. And I think, actually, I think if there were, a, what do they call them? What's it called when they, when they the Anglican rite, whatever they what's it called? Whatever it's called. Yeah. But if we're one of those uh from ordinary, if they were an ordinary church around here, I'm sure that's where we'd be going to church. Really? Oh yeah. Well, because you know, I spent so much time um with those those metaphysical poets, most of whom were Anglican priests. Right. You know, and and Robert Herrick, who was not really a metaphysical poet, but He's like my ideal drinking partner. <laughs> he's so he's so full of life, and he's he's okay with things being messy, right? Yeah, we don't have to have it. Has, it doesn't have to be ideologically secure, right? You know, we can be messy and still be a community. And I think he's right. the ideal person for that. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I like about your book too, because you you really you really show that you know these folk practices in some ways are much closer to the Sophianic than Thomas More and the Cambridge Platonists. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is not something that really hadn't occurred to me until I read Well, that. the thing is, I think people get attracted, you know, I noticed this in the last 10 years or so, young people feeling an attraction toward Catholic reverence, right? Toward the traditional yeah. liturgy. But then they, they, they have to, they, it seems to be that usually they're young men that they, they feel obligated to become Thomists all of a sudden, or Neo-Thomists, which is even worse, right? Which is, uh, which is disappointing. And I think it's actually a search for a father, for someone to lay down the rules, right? Yeah. 
And I think eventually they burn out on that and they're, and they're trying to find, and this is the other half, other side of it is, and I think they get attracted to, to my work because they're trying to find, like what you said, those folk practices. Mm -hmm. It does not need to be an intellectual trip, right? Yeah, yeah. It has to, it's conviviality. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's why we do the festivals because you should see the kids look forward to these festivals. You know, for my two youngest are now about, they're, they're gonna turn 10 and 12 this month. That's, but my eldest is 30, you know, so, uh, but the little kids looking forward to this and they all participate and, and the community looks forward to these things because it's, it's in an embodied Christianity. Yeah. It's connected to the cosmos. Yeah. Right. It's connected to the cosmos. And if it's not connected to the cosmos, it's, it's disincarnate. Right. And, and my work, you know, I work with drug addicts and um, I am a drug addict. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we do is sort of what they call 12 step facilitation, which can be very powerful. It's got certain, I would call it like an evangelical pietism really, but it does tend to be very Protestant. You know, you're worshiping this book, right. a temptation to bibliodolatry can get very linear, very abstract. And you take that and then you bring and, and addiction itself. So, you, you know, you're, you're running from this affect, this pain. Right. First, you go up into your head to try to manage it, which right. doesn't work. So then you go out into the drugs to escape. So it's a total disembodiment. Yeah. And I found that if you, you add something like Sardello's work or even something like yoga, but really going to the Alcyon Center and getting in the woods with all that, yeah. they come down. Yeah. Um, they feel the out of the stress response um so i feel like this this kind of yeah message is applicable you know it's a healing it's, it's it more than a theology it's a healing um and i think that that relationship with the land yeah that can be fostered in some way whether whether it's the, the woods or farming and gardening or beekeeping whatever it is you really feel you're connected to something real yeah or woodworking, right? I mean, well, you know, it's really like the anthropops when they do, you know, teacher training where they have all that artistic work. Yeah, that is that is a, a tremendously healing. And that you, when I when I taught in Walter teacher training, that's the people would say, you know, this is so healing. This has healed my soul. It's it's healed the wounds from my horrible education. Mm. Right. Oh yeah, the first time I went to a Walter kindergarten. I felt like I had to grieve my own. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, anthropologists recognize now, and this is not really even up for debate, that in intact indigenous cultures, there is no addiction. Right. So where you have that kind of, Sardello calls it, complex resonance with the earth, you don't have addiction. No, because you're, because you're connected to the real. Yeah. You don't feel alone. Alienation right. is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and like you said, you know, because because you're not alone, you're not thrust into your head trying to figure it out, right? You just you don't have to figure it out because you're you're already and this another thing, I think it's in, in this submerged reality, but in my book, uh the incarnation of the poetic word, that parasaic presence being present, whether it's to a text or to nature or liturgy, if you're present to it, there's this, there's this, there's healing that comes with that because you're becoming present to what's real, you know, without your imposition of understanding or de definitions or whatever it happens to be onto it. Yeah. I think that's what Robert gets into as well, right? He does. He likes to say this. He says, um, the big obstacle to listening is the understanding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really wonderful. So we'll, we'll sometimes do these exercises where we'll get really silent, we'll get into the heart, and your, dia your dialogue partner will speak about something, you know, what's important to you, whatever. But you're, you're watching for the hook, you know, for when Michael says something and I think, oh, that reminds me of my friend. <laughs> yeah. and, 
And what Robert says is if you can resist that hook, then something's going to open up. And mm-hmm. it's true. It's true. I start, I start really hearing you, which is more than yep. Yep. classifying you. It, it's hard. I mean, our, our culture is so uh, caught up in that headspace, right? It's in, in, in a, you know, we, we respond without listening. Mm, right. Social media is really exacerbating that, right? Have you had any inquiries about this book from uh, seminaries or divinity schools or anything like that, to your knowledge? Uh, I know at least one Orthodox seminary has been using it. Really? Yeah. Really wonderful. That um, must feel good. But I know, but I had no, actually, it's I, it's in, I also heard, I don't know if they're teaching it or not, but I know they, they're carrying it in at Mundelein Seminary in Indiana, I think they are. I know they were interested in what I was doing because one of their one of their uh, professors just wrote a book on what's that guy's name? I can't remember his name. He wrote The Throne of Wisdom. What's his name? <laughs> I quote him. But uh he'll come to me. But so 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 they're interested in sociology, I guess. And believe it or not, uh, next the seventeenth. I'm giving a lecture at Hillsdale College. Oh, really? Online? No, in person. Oh, well. On sophiology and the metaphysical poets. Really? And and when, when they contacted me, they said, yeah, well, quite a few of our faculty members read your books. Really? That's so interesting. Yeah. So it's out there. Yeah. I know, uh, Milbank, in fact, Milbank has been using my work and his wife as well. She's also a professor and she's in addition, she's a, she's an Anglican priest. And where does Milbank teach? He retired from teaching, but his wife he teaches at, and he used to teach at uh, Nottingham University. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, he's definitely, you know, if you want somebody to, to, to popularize your work, he's a great guy, at least in the, those circles. Um, yeah, so so I'm not. <clears throat> in fact, recently, would what would happen? So I, I I think I don't know for sure, but I, I think I've made it okay for academics to talk about Rudolf Steiner too. That's no small feat. That's no well, but, but so there was long you don't mention Vulcan and two Christ children. Yeah, <laughs> but because recently, I don't know, it was a year ago maybe. Somebody was giving a lecture on Rudolf Steiner at some, some conference or something. Somebody let me know about it. I told my wife, she said, they're stealing your thunder. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, but, you know, I made it okay to talk about it. I mean, people, I don't think they know how to understand them. And let's face it, you first dip into Rudolf Steiner, you're, you're in a different world. Oh, yeah. Right? So it, it, for for... for the typical academic that's that's taboo material mm-hmm. but look you know i think the other thing is with with uh all of the practical successes of rudolf steiner's uh inspirations whether it's in farming viticulture or beekeeping people are taken a little bit more seriously now they are there's yeah. the first book a uh, theological book on barfield just got by a guy in England. So I'm hoping that that'll be... I've often wondered why Emil Bach isn't more read by academics because he would be more... Yeah, he seems a little bit more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Martin, this has been a real pleasure. I hope you get some readers out of this. Um, And I would like to um, support your work any way I can. Thank you so much. Yes. So hopefully we'll talk again. Okay, great. Thanks, Pierce. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.